Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Fanzine Podcast. Just before we get started with the show, this is your host, Tony Fletcher. I want to invite you to sign up for the weekly newsletter over at tonyfletcher.substack.com. It'll give you updates on this podcast, my other podcast, all forms of recommendations with a midweek update, a long-form weekend read. Sign up is absolutely free. There are interview archives, uh, additional podcast features, and you will be able to to see uh, more of the fanzines that uh, we're talking about on this show. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. Thanks again. Now on with the pod. It's the jamming fanzine. Fanzine. Podcast. I mean, the thing about a fanzine was holding it in your hand, right? And looking at the way it had been put together and the punk way it had been put together, quite quite frankly. And it had a staple in it, you know, and and that was that is a fanzine, right? Episode six, Morrissey, Frankie, Natalie and Bronski with Russell Young and Chris Heath. And welcome everybody. I'm your host, Tony Fletcher. Thanks so much for listening in. If you've been listening previously, you'll know the drill right here. This show, this podcast, was initially set up as a cross-promotion for the book that is now available worldwide. It's called The Best of Jamming, Selections and Stories from the Fanzine that Grew Up 1977-86, to a title that I hope is at least a little bit self-explanatory. However, the longer that we've been putting out this podcast, and the more that I'm thinking that in the new year, 2022, might continue it by having more conversations with other people who are involved or have been involved in similar ventures, the more I'm realizing that really the subtitle for this podcast should be conversations around the fanzine culture or even conversations around the post-punk culture, the punk culture, the new wave culture, because certainly all the conversations we're having extend way beyond the jamming fanzine and much more into the sort of mood of the times. This episode is a perfect case in point. I got to sit down in person in New York City with two wonderful people, Russell Young, a photographer par excellence back in the 1980s. He went straight from jamming more or less to doing the cover for George Michael's Faith album, one of the big sellers of the 1980s, went on to become video director and these days a fine artist and writer, author and great journalist Chris Heath. Both of them were integral to whatever successes that jamming had and in the conversation that we had together, both Chris and Russell kind of imparted a lot of the knowledge they've acquired over the years that's kind of gotten them to the top of their game and they are at the top of their game, both of them. And I learned a lot from that. So if I learned a lot from that, I'm trusting that you will as well. And even if you're not an aspiring writer or photographer or artist of any kind, um, just some of the anecdotes are really fascinating. Just, you know, some insights into some of the personalities that Chris interviewed and Russell photographed. I will come back at the end of the interview to tell you about some events we have coming up to coincide with the worldwide publication of the book. It's been available in the UK since September, but as of December 2nd, 2021, it's out worldwide. Enjoy our conversations about Bronski, Frankie, Natalie, Morrissey, Astley and more. Cheers. Do you want to buy a copy of Jamming? I'm Russell Young. Um, I was a photographer for Jamming. My very first paid job was for Jamming of um, Virginia Astley, and I am now an artist. Um, I'm Chris Heath. 
I'm a writer. The first kind of real long feature stories I wrote anywhere were for jamming. And that's the kind of thing I've sort of carried on doing ever since. And the three of us are meeting in New York City, where um, all three of us have lived at some point in time. And yeah, I want to get to how we all ended up here. But I thought I would start by saying that A, it's a pleasure to see you both. And B, thank you both so much for uh, being totally up for everything to do with this book, which was both fun to put together and, and, and brought back many memory of late nights and deadlines and all that fun stuff. But to, um, and, and you both contributed some nice little copy for the book as well. But just to throw it all the way back to how you both came to jamming, um, it wasn't strictly in the fanzine days, but you may have had a, an understanding of it as a fanzine. Russell, you got to us about two or three issues before Chris. So um, what's your memory of coming and finding out about jamming and coming to us? I mean, it was just exciting. I walked in and just there was a real buzz and energy. And I went, oh, my God, these people are great. And I was looking for my I mean, I'd been assistant to an amazing photographer, Christos Raftopoulos, and I'd honed my craft and was out there taking photographs but it was I was looking for some paid jobs and I knew this is what I wanted to do and you gave me the opportunity I mean I ended up um you know doing Morrissey for a cover for you I ended up sort of doing the Smiths live I mean it was just it was just a great journey to go on with you but the energy was incredible I mean can you remember where we were when you first yeah it was this? some like basement or something like that wasn't it I mean it's like I, I, I it it was, I, I was like, I was like, mm, okay. It's like a, where where a mini cab office would be. We were an underground magazine in the uh, literal sense as well yes, as the metaphorical yes. sense. We were underneath <laughs> um, what was then Second Vision, I believe, Robin Richards' okay. design company yeah, on the Hammersmith yeah. Road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, I could probably walk to that office now. You know, I've got a good memory with all that. I could walk stuff, to it yeah. now. I remember that it was number sixty-nine, and I dug out. Um, I dug out an office in the basement, <laughs> a windowless, <laughs> a windowless office. When we decided to, uh, to to get the magazine further going, were you aware of it as a fanzine or a magazine? Can you remember what it was? No, I, I, no, I'd seen it as a fanzine. I mean, I'd collected everything. I mean, I, I used to. I was um, a junkie for fanzines. Yeah, I mean, I had everything: sniffing glue, everything. I would just get, yeah, piles of these things. Did, did you call up a, a bunch of magazines or did you kind of think, let me start from the ones I want to work for? And no, I, I, I called a few. I called a few. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I probably called Sounds Enemy, Melody Maker. They probably all said no at that stage. Um, not even getting in the door. So you, you were very open, let me in the door and let me start my career, which led me to amazing places, lots of different avenues. Was it myself, Alan, John Wilde, a combination of the three? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I'm not sure I remember John that day. So, com yeah, so it was probably myself and Alan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, was, what was your experience then, Chris? I was hoping you'd, you could help me, because it's all blurry. <laughs> but I... Because <laughs> that's a long time ago. Well, no, it? I, it's not that. It's just, <laughs> I can't... Knowing myself then, I can't believe I had the nerve to get in touch with you, or quite what I said. Um, I don't know if I wrote or if I phoned up, but I just, I don't know why. I somehow thought maybe this magazine would let me write something. I, I, I really could sound idiotic saying it like that. And you did. And I think you said, I can't remember whether I wrote something first. And then I remember coming down to Nomis. And then I, and I, I remember exactly walking in and it was you, John and Alan, and talking to you all. And I was incredibly intimidated by you all, but you also weren't as scary as I thought people were going to be. 
Hmm. You know what I mean? I thought like no, there was a sort of, there was a sort of spirit where I thought that maybe I could be part of this, and you know maybe this could work. You wrote in the book uh, something about just seeing maybe an opening. You said something about how we weren't judgmental, but obviously we judge music, yeah, you because know, you kind of had to, but we weren't sort of judgmental people. And I would like to think that there was this openness that people would call us up and we would try and get a sense of if they were semi-serious, semi-talented, you know, just, just, but pretty much invite them in and say, well, come in and talk with us, show us what you got. Yeah, I mean, certainly that was my experience and, and I didn't need to be, I didn't need to be encouraged twice. I don't know if I could have been explicit to myself, but in all my actions, I realised this was, this was an amazing opportunity for me to do, suddenly I was being allowed to do the thing that I hadn't even worked out what it quite what it was, but suddenly I was being allowed to do the thing that I wanted to do. Right, and that's a really important aspect of this because we don't all set off, like, I can't imagine that you, Russell, set off saying you were going to be a fine artist if you were coming up through photography necessarily, and I didn't necessarily set off saying I'm going to write books, and maybe you didn't either, Chris. It's kind of, I want to be in this world and I know there's a place for me. You were coming from photography. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I, I'd been to a, 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 you know, did a BA honours degree in graphic design, film photography, and then that led the photography part I'd been doing since I was eight years old. I'd been drawing since I was three. I'd always been making marks and things like that. So it, it sort of, it was what I wanted to do, desperately wanted to do. And having assisted Christos, I knew he did fashion. I knew, I thought I was going to do fashion, but after working in the fashion world, it was like, I can't. I can't deal with these people. Um, I actually can't deal with these on a daily basis. And the music industry, your, your magazine, it was just all so like a family and friendly. And I didn't ever feel any pressure that if I, you know, I fucked up with a negative or anything like that, messed, I could just call up somebody and go shoot it again, right? You know, I don't think I ever messed up, but it was like, they didn't feel like that pressure. You know, it's, um, I think we it was were a very, good. very relaxed and easy environment to work in. Which is which is great to hear, and I uh, we had to refresh our memories when we were we did a little call for the for the book because your first piece, yes, Virginia Aslan, yeah, um, but simultaneously because for the same issue, and actually I think uh, Chris has brought in a whole bunch of them, bunch. I brought in a couple. You did you came with me up to Ipswich to, to see UB40, UB40, yeah, of yeah. which when you told me I had. I said, I don't think I've ever been to Ipswich in my life. <laughs> and you said, yes, you drove me up there. And I'm like, really? And so then you, I looked at the photographs and went, oh, yeah, I remember taking those. You, so. probably, uh, you probably got the work because you had a car. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Yes, yeah, see, there's... there's. Where's Virginia Astley? I used to love Virginia Oh, Astley. Interesting. Somebody just reviewed the book and said, hey, you can dip back in and rediscover people like Virginia Astley. And that was oh, the wow. one. They yeah. mentioned. Yeah. And yeah. You, you wrote that that album is one you still listen to to the, this Yeah, day. from Gardens Where We Feel Secure. Yeah, what a beautiful album. Yeah, I mean, I still listen to that. And, you know, we live down by the beach and just, just listen to that. And it's the countryside. I go to sleep listening to that. When my 20-year-old was in the womb, I'd play that to him all the time. It right. just, just takes me somewhere else. It's interesting that we had you then go off and take photographs of the Smiths live. Marcy yeah. was on the cover of issue 17 with a press shot by Paul Cox, who was also very, very easy to work with. Uh, I'm pretty sure, yeah, it was Paul Cox. And you took some live photos there. Yeah. And you write in the book about um, just the excitement of seeing the Smiths, because it was a really important band. And they, they actually, we kind of, you know, 
latched on to them to some degree. Um, and, and that was in 1983 as well, right? Yes, right. I mean, you know, so that's early, early Smith. Well, you went to see them. I think you said it was the Electric Borum. It was yeah. in late 82. Okay. And okay. you, you said the crowd was unbelievably friendly because you were used to getting well, thrown around with a camera. Yeah, I mean, with a camera, right? So I walked into the crowd and it parted like the Red Sea. I mean, it really, because they could see, like, here's somebody coming to photograph the, the, the idol, the god. And, I mean, he performed occasionally to me. He had the gladioli out of his back pocket and was delightful and eccentric. And I was just like, fell in love. I mean, it was just like, you know. Right. And I've seen him over the years. We've sort of vaguely kept in touch. I think I saw him at the Inventura, the Majestic, which was a very small thing about five or six years ago on a tour. Smallest place he was playing. And he looked out the crowd halfway through a song. He went... What the fuck are you doing here? To point it to me, and I'm like, "What the fuck are you doing here?" Back, you know. So, you know, we've kept a relationship, and yeah, I did the everyday like Sunday sleeve, and that was all because of the early days of jamming, and then doing that session in Liverpool with him. Doing that session in Liverpool, which we'll get to. I'd love love to get to that in a minute because actually part of it is that um, I noted going through that although we started off and you were doing live pictures you gravitated very quickly to doing more like portrait stuff where yeah. you're outdoors yeah. and then eventually indoors so i think you know it's a classic case of finding your strength there were other people that were very good and very happy to go to gigs and you were able to work with artists in the open air or in the studio and deliver some top-notch shots and right around the time that you were just getting familiar with us uh chris came a knocking and we were we were scratching our heads a bit you wrote to me at one point i am um, and said you know i think I had another early piece with you. So you, you must have pitched us on a couple of things. So you remember your first pieces? So I think the fir- was the first one Andy White, and the, the first two were Andy White and the Inca Babies. Andy White was someone I knew at university. So, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I probably, you know, <laughs> like, I probably didn't. Tell Did you. he ask that you be the journalist? Is that <laughs> how you got your start? No, no, no. He was he, like, he, you know, he was the he was someone at university who I, you know, I correctly thought, no, this person is going to become something. And, you know, though he didn't become the biggest star in the world, he, he's had a career through to this day. So I think I, I just knew that I, I, it seemed, that seemed to make sense. And then the Inca Babies I also knew through... Um, I sort of knew Dave Haslam, you know, the, right, the, yeah, I know the, Dave, the writer yeah. and DJ. I didn't know he had a connection to them. Well, he, yeah, he, he and I, this is, I'm going to embarrass myself here. So I was in a band... At, at college, at university, and the two people I was in a band with, their best friend was Dave Haslam. So we went up and stayed with him in Manchester. And I guess the Inca babies were his friends and lived in the same estate or the next estate. So I was sort of aware of them very early, and they seemed kind of interesting. And it's interesting looking at these early pieces because the same way, as I was saying with Russell, you see somebody kind of gradually forming themselves. Uh, for starters, no reason, the reason we know ne- you never had to worry about messing up, I mean, your first piece with Andy White uh, had one of the, uh, when, I, when I found it, I, I thought we were always pretty good at doing black, black type on the blue background, but I think we excelled ourselves with your Andy White piece. I don't even know if you have it there, but it's, it's, it's actually almost unreadable. I mean, you got paid for something I don't think anybody could have read. It's quite possibly I wrote it like that. Um, and then i i I was watching as you sort of progress to um you know a couple of a couple of slightly bigger pieces like the go-betweens and they are quite quote heavy sort of start off with the quotations and they're they're almost like potted biographies 
and that's that's sort of how can you can you do you have a progression of other artists that you remember working your way up I, it was funny you know the, I mean because I guess the first really big story I did was the Bronsky beat one I'm quite pleased that I wrote it but I was also monumentally embarrassed by it because it's written with such appalling overconfidence <laughs> and it's like I'm, I'm, I'm trying so because because it you know at that age you only do anything by by it right. all being a it's all a con job and a put on you're trying to pretend to be something and it's so obvious to me that I'm desperately trying so to how be. old were you when you were that that article I mean roughly. I guess what's that it's like 22 maybe yeah that's yeah. probably when I started yeah. that yeah. age and yeah, and you know, and, and I mean, I admire the fact that I just went and did it, <laughs> but 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 I'm also kind of a, acting like I know things there that I certainly don't know now. Right. You know, on the other hand, I think it's what twenty-two-year-old should be doing. For me, reading it back, I think it's a piece of brilliant journalism because the overconfidence allows you to do something that we weren't fond of at Jamie. You take about two pages before you get a quote out of Bronski. <laughs> Which is was was generally something reserved for like Paul Morley at the enemy, of whom perhaps yeah. more later. But what what you did there was you actually wrote a whole kind of essay on uh, gayness in in pop music. You, you know, because Bronski B were actually quite important because they yeah. were the first band <coughs> that said all all of us, all three of us, are openly gay, yeah. and and we're going to sing about um, about male love. And what are you going to, you know, basically what you're going to do about it? Whereas you take in that article, you talk about, well, I actually prefer the music of Boy George and Morrissey, neither of whom had actually come out. Um, so you actually sort of like, like just assume, make your own presumptions, but everything that you... everybody in the music business. <laughs> I'm getting, now I'm getting more embarrassed. But, you're, but it's, actually, it's actually very pertinent and, and very accurate when you, 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 you know, you actually have quite a lot of, of vision, so the same way that I am often when I look back at the fanzine stuff, I am excruciatingly embarrassed by my own writing. And then I bump into people who say, "No, the energy of your writing inspired yeah. me to do this, that, and the other." You have nothing to apologise for. I feel the same way about that Bronsky beat piece. I think it was quite brave. I guess it was honest to who I was pretending to be, which is a weird construct, but but there is an honesty to yeah. that. Did you, there's one point at which actually the band do, does say to you, I think literally, um, they said, we're not that deep. They're actually saying to you, you can't intellectualise this to us. We're actually not that deep. We are indeed sort of small town boys. <laughs> well, I, I just sort of imagine they had this incredibly annoying 22-year-old coming on so strong. They're just like, stop it. Yeah. Um, by that time, <clears throat> the magazine has progressed quite a bit, Russell, because it, that's actually in the same issue as your beautiful Morrissey Oh, wow, cover. my Morrissey cover, yeah. And, I mean, we've got these magazines here as well, which uh, I brought in a couple, but Chris brought the rest up. This is, um, I would say, it was probably the most iconic of the various covers we ever commissioned. Right. Morrissey is just looking out at us with the biggest quiff. Yeah, I mean, he had this beautiful striped shirt on. He is... Um... He's he's got his hair. He's got his look going. And was it John who yes, um, wrote this thing? So we we sat in some hotel and he talked and talked and talked. And I went, hang on, this is the only genius I've ever met in the music business. And I still believe that to today. He's the only 15 years in the music business. He was the only true genius I ever came across. I loved his off kilter answers. His off kilter way. We grew up about the same age. 
15 miles apart from each other. So all his experiences were my experiences. And he was just verbalizing them in just the most fantastic, you know, it's a very sarcastic way, a very humorous way, a very tongue-in-cheek way. So I just fell in love with him and his music and the, the lyrics and the Smiths and him. And we, this is in front of Liverpool Town Hill Hall. And it was a windy day and we went up on the steps. We did maybe one roll and I had my silver photographer's case, brand new silver. You know, I'm now a photographer that is going to do a cover and I've got a silver case to put my cameras in. And the wind caught it and blew everything. Film, I mean, over like a 20-foot range. And so Morrissey and I are crawling on the ground, picking up the film and cameras and, you know, whatever. And we were laughing and just getting on. And I just continued to take pictures that day of him. I mean, he was delightful. He was very shy. Um, a later session that actually, I think, became the everyday, like, Sunday sleeve. Um, he walks into the studio with a carrier bag and like he's crunched up and very embarrassed and shy. And I go, Morris, it's me. And he's like, looks around, there's nobody else. He went, oh, okay. And he sort of relaxed, right? Because he comes into rooms, the shyest person there is. And he had that shyness then, but a genius, just genius. And his words, his lyrics, his love of music. and That's late 84, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's late 84. So you would have first seen him in 83. So just yeah. to correct what I said, yeah, yeah. What I said earlier. And so it's around, um, I believe it's uh, probably around Hatful of Hollow. And so the band is just buzzing, yeah. you know, and they're big with our readers. And I think you captured their, the essence of Morrissey. I mean, he's, a, he's, yeah, he's Oscar Wilde, he's a poet, he's everything there. He's handsome as well. Yeah. You know, I mean, oh, I'm no, just no, genu I mean, I, genuinely, so you know, I, I got, at, at that point in his life. Over the years, I got paid lots of money because I made men look handsome and still gave them a roughness and edge and whatever. I just could do that and know how to like them. And this is outside, but I'm, you know, working with lights and I've probably got a reflector stapled to my chest or something to get that light bouncing back and, and whatever. And it's also the instructions you give. I mean, years later, I would take a session of him and he's, you know, he's, I think he was, you know, a bit miserable that day. And I said, you know, imagine you've got sherbet in your mouth. And he smiled, and it's like the only pictures of him ever smiling, but this is beautiful smile. So as a photographer, you're always trying to drag these things out of people. And... There are di great differences between photographers and, and writers, but I think that both have the need to put their subjects at some form of ease if they're going to be able to turn mm. in, as journalists, yeah. photographers, good work. Did you feel that that was something that was necessary when you went into a room or on the road or however it was you sat down with people? I don't think I thought about things like that until much later. I think instinctively I was... I, I, don't, I, I always think as a writer you've got a balance to make and it's a very delicate balance. Because you, you want to put people at ease but you don't want them to be too much at their ease. You can't. You don't get good interviews with people if they're too much at their ease. Because if they're too much at their ease, they think, "Oh, we're all in this together and we're on the same side." I don't have to explain myself. You need people to want to explain themselves. So you want them to be comfortable, but not completely at ease. Do, do, do you know what I mean? I do. I I I find very often the word might be the word that is used sometimes about the earlier issues and some of the Q and A sort of interviews is people seem to sort of unguarded. You see, I think the key thing is not, is, not, is not putting people at their ease. The key thing you can do, and you do naturally when you're young, is be super interested. 
-hmm. And that's the thing that makes people talk, is they see in you that you're, you really are interested in what you're asking of them. And that, makes, that makes, stops people being on automatic mode, and that starts them talking. And then people respond to that. People, all humans respond to that. But, and you see journalists really, really quickly often just getting into a routine and a rhythm. And, they're just do, and as soon as they're doing it like a job, and they, they kind of want answers, but they're not that super interested, they, they, they lose that attraction to people. You know, they, people. they stop getting such good answers. And I've, I've, had, I've fought, ever since I thought about it more, and especially as you get older, I've fought to always go in the room with that same kind of interest. So does that mean that you are willing to follow people on tangents? You might go in with a set of notes and questions, but if they go on a tangent and it's interesting, you're like, hey, I'm interested. Yeah, I think it. Uh, that again, that's a. It's like a sort of elastic string. You have to judge depending on the circumstances how long you'll let it stretch out. Because sometimes that's a really good way of building up a rapport with someone, but sometimes it's incredibly wasteful and leads to a complete lack of focus. So it, it, it's a balance. But yeah, certainly, ideally, yeah. Right. On those, uh, I mean, I've got an, a, a note from talking with you previously, Russell, on some of the people you photographed. I mean, there's a lot of there's, there's a lot of names in there. Um, do any of them uh, jump out at you as particularly enjoyable people? They don't have to have been most successful artists. But George was... Best. My dad took me to see George Best. Oh, I just like fainted when he when I saw him play. It was just insane. He'd be right down at the front and he'd just be like a bullfighter. And I couldn't believe I was meeting him and taking his photographs. And this one here, I've gone on the ground. And he's like, we're in the middle of London. He's like, get up, get up, get up, get up, get up. You know, he's embarrassed that I'm lying on the ground. And he's like, why are you doing that? I said, I'm just making you look like, you know, larger than life. And I think he started drinking after this, but again. But I love that photograph of George Best. I mean, that's... It's very nice. Uh, who it's... puts the dotted line over it? Oh, I don't know. Maybe that's the other <laughs> Russell who put a dotted <laughs> It is actually a lovely portrait. We could actually just remove that dotted line. Yeah. yeah. See, see, after a while, I stopped seeing the dotted lines and the, the, the yellows and everything else and whatever. And, you know, just... So in the same issue, then... But he's doing less here. Less is... Less is um... Yeah, I mean, I think gradually we couldn't afford the colour, so that kind of eliminated... How brilliant. Yes. Except that's a nice colour photograph, yeah? It's a very nice colour photograph. And I think you got something out of everything, but the girl, they, they were hard. To, I, I mean, they weren't taking brilliant photographs no, at the time. No, I, think no, I mean, as a photographer, you could do some research and you look and you go, oh, wow, well, this is going to be a hard day. But no, they, they came to my studio. I had a studio which Christos had let me use all the time. It was his studio, but it was my studio as well. So I had time and, you know, I mean, that's... That might be the very first time and you, uh, you, you did a studio session for us. As yeah. best I can tell, it probably is. Yeah, yeah, so, so maybe as a magazine we were moving up enough that we could say, would you be able to come to our studio, Russell's right. studio, and do a, do a shot? Because you're moving from people who say, shoot me in the streets, you know, to... Yeah, I mean, and now you're calling it a magazine, not a fanzine, right? You just called it a magazine then. Yeah, I think right? at this Rather point it is, a, yeah. Yeah, so it's... I think it is. One other one I want to mention of yours, uh, Russell, would be 10,000 Maniacs. Yes. I remember John the day before the photo session saying, come and see 10,000 Maniacs live. And I was going to Brixton somewhere. And we're standing quite close to the front. And then Natalie is singing a song and she starts crying in the middle of the song. I mean, it was just so emotional, just like an amazing moment. Um, I spent most of the next day with her. 
Um, I met them at the hotel room and she was staying with the whole band in a tiny little hotel room in Bayswater and they're all like being lads and I'm like, what the hell? You know, I said, I said, come sleep on my couch, you know, whatever. I think we went for an Indian meal that night. I mean, we got on really well, actually, and I took some gorgeous photographs of her just, you know. Yeah, she was, she was a great subject. Right. Um, I remember being surprised she had trousers on and her leg lifted up and she's got hairy legs. And I was like, wow, how, how, how freaking cool is that, that you're, you're, you're that relaxed about all that, that you're, you know, in a sense, a pop star, but, you know. Yeah, and the, the American kind of alternative scene, as, as it ended up getting called, was really just gathering steam. I mean, you also took some nice pictures of R.E.M. Yeah. So it was, you know, it was R.E.M., 10,000 Maniacs, and there were some harder-edged bands, you know, the Huskadoos, and yeah. also the more Americana, Long Riders style bands. So, um, you know, you, you, there were good pictures of, of those. And, and, you know, you were, the slight thing, you were like a couple of, you know, about three issues or so ahead of, of, of Chris, who's gradually doing more and more for us. And... Two, two, there, there are a couple of general things I want to raise and, uh, before getting into a couple more specifics towards the end of the magazine. So you're right. I called it a magazine. Yeah. And it really struck me that the two of you were instrumental in taking what was, um, at the point you joined, Russell, you know, a fanzine that had actually only come out once a year because of me running this record label, but it was really established, had gone colour, but we made the leap into being a bi-monthly magazine every yeah. every two issues with a massive, still a massive fanzine element to it. Um, and then you, you, you came on board just right after that, Chris, and I think you were both instrumental in taking it from being this scrappy fanzine that had dared to go and fight its way into the, the right. shops and turn it into more of a magazine but I don't think you ever did anything that, that just sold us out to the mainstream. I think you were part of the so journey. So we didn't ruin the fanzine. I thought we were going to be blamed. The parents. No, I, 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 <laughs> it no. used to be a great fanzine to you yeah, two we're, came we're, along. Where was that going? <laughs> I think that you were both part of the journey of uh, giving people a reason to you know, pick up this magazine, whether it was every two months or as of you know, September, what would it be, 84 every, um, yeah. every, every month, because, you know, good journalism, good photography, and, and still doing it the right way. I mean, I'm very aware that you were not, I don't think either of you came to me or to John or Alan from a fanzine background. You came to us from a, I want to write articles for you. Um, but, they're not Q&A, you know, but in the beginning they weren't Q&A, right? No, but, but, but at the same time, I, and I think, I, think, I think in parallel, it's true for Russell too, we, we weren't doing, whether instinctively or whatever, we, we weren't doing like some version of what was somewhere else. No. You know, I, I, I wasn't writing pieces that were an audition to get into the NME. I maybe intuitively at that point I got this was an amazing form and this was an amazing magazine that you could write about this kind of music and these kind of people in this kind of way and you could do it in a distinctive way here and it may it wasn't the fanzine way but it was a way that it evolved out of that 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 was really valid and special and, and distinct that's what it felt to me and I felt the experimentation and growing up as a photographer right it allowed me to try different things and you know hone my craft Something I've... And it'd be published, right? Because you can be a great photographer, but I n I've never had an exhibition of my photographs ever. So, you know, you want people to see it, right? The magazine was a way to, you know, to get your work out there and, and to, to go, okay, so that worked in the magazine. That didn't, right? You know, it's, um, you know, I mean, you, you honed your craft as well, right? Of writing and going, you know, oh, wow, that was a great article. I enjoyed that, you know. 
Oh no, I mean I I could I the my learning curve through this yeah. part of issues is huge. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it was, and it's was allowing me to do it. The uh, the camaraderie was was pretty important. Something else that just that struck me as we're we're talking there that I think I was always aware of it at the time. Uh, some people, and there's nothing wrong with this at all, will come to jamming and use it as a stepping stone. There were one or two sure. people who came, got a couple of pieces with us, a couple of pieces yeah. in something, you know, another magazine, and then got a job on a weekly. And that's absolutely fine, you know, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Both of you seem to say, well, jamming is a good fit for me. Yeah. And I don't think we, sh we had to share you much with other people. Well, except that, it, just to, to be accurate with the record, but, you know, by, you know, I took a job at Smash Hits by early 1985 so at that point you know and that and that was the yeah. beginning of a whole other career but then I just carried on doing jamming as much and it didn't change what I did for jamming and you know that those two things that from then on carried on in parallel but I suspect by I suspect the issue where I had six pieces in I suspect that's when I was already at Smash Hits well, it would have been yeah. if that's... So maybe, because it's interesting, because my memory's not going to be intact either. So maybe the fact that if you had a day job at Smash Hits and you could write your, what would you want to call it, more expansive pieces for us? I don't know, maybe we gave you more words at times. Then some, that was all some, you needed? Yeah, I, I, look, I was just having a great time. That's been most of the whole story. You know, I, I was just... You know, I, I, but both of those things were things that I was incredibly enjoying and finding incredibly fulfilling. And I, I was just, I, I, I was just saying yes to all of the anything that you know. Yeah, it, was all, it was all me exciting, too, yeah. and I, and I wanted to do it. I don't remember. I, I'm now thinking, how <laughs> did I write six pieces in in two months away from my day job? I have no idea, but I don't remember it ever being. Yeah, that, there that, ever being that would take what two years now to do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but you know, I, I, I was just having fun and. I guess maybe what I'm getting at there, Chris, is you didn't spread yourself too thin. So, I mean, if you had smash hits and you had jamming, that was probably enough for you. Yeah, I would, no, no, because no, I wasn't, I don't know what, um, I don't know what I would have done that would have taken the place of jamming. To, you know, I suppose, even though it wasn't really a good fit for me yet, but, you know, later on I wrote for The Face, and I guess if, I, if I'd started to write for The Face... Maybe that's the place you could have done some version of it, but I, I would have rather be writing for jamming at that point because I wanted to be in pop music like that. You right. know, there, you know, there were there were lots of internal problems ultimately, but the people in the office at jamming, you know, even when you went around, you know, John and Paul Mather and people were at heart incredible enthusiasts, and it was very and and they had a real kind of excitement that. That, that was a big part of it the whole thing went, that, right? I, that, I, that I was part of. And, and, yeah, and I, I think memories of other stuff can cloud that. So, you know, talking about it now, I, I am thinking about how this happened. And it was like, you know, it was like, it would be most often probably John phoning me up and saying, you're going to go and interview Soto. And it was just excitement. Yeah. You know, we were exciting about doing all these things. Some of them were the really obvious things to do. Some of them were crazy ideas. But there was just an excitement. I've always envied photographers because I don't think that they have to pass um, a judgment on, a, on their subject yeah. art. You can just be like, I just want to make you look good. And you can literally go home and say, well, I hate the music, love the person, or I love the music, don't like sure. the person, but my job is to make them look good. As writers, you know, they're more likely to say, what do you think of the new record? And we are more likely to find ourselves sort of, you know, wanting to write about either people we like or, or, or have a need to share our opinion with the people we're interviewing. Was that something that became, that was ever a burden for you? I don't know about a burden. It, it's an issue. 
And I think there's different ways of negotiating it in, in different situations. It depends what you're writing and why you're writing it. I get, because I can't bear, when people handle it in what I think is the wrong way, I, I can't bear the syndrome where, you know, you, you'll, see, you'll see articles about people and so you, there's a kind of writer who every time they interview someone, they'll talk about how they've just made their best album mm-hmm. or their best album since their great album. And it's like, and I, did, and I just read those articles with a filter. I understand why they feel, and I, I, I imagine they probably pass a lie detector test when they're writing it, because that's what they sort of, you know, that's their way of dealing with what you're talking about. And also sort of dealing with selling their own importance of what they're doing. But that, that to me is, would be horrible if I found myself doing that. At the same time, you know, you, you're going to get in some awkward places if you, you know, but I guess my real answer in, practic- in, in real terms is usually in the real world, there's a lot else to talk about, you know, and there's a lot else that's interesting about people. Do you, know, you have people, record companies, bands, people come after you, come, come send you horrible messages and things like that or be disappointed? I, well, I, see, I, I, don't forget, it's, we're in a very different world now to when we Communicate, were. Communicate, yeah. When, no, but it, it, we're in a different world in that I, I used to, I mean, you know, jamming, was you know and would and would present itself as this sort of beacon of positivity compared to most of the way the, most of the way the music press worked in Britain. Right. I mean, don't forget, it was absolutely totally normal for some big American act to come over, for the record company to spend loads of money to take loads of people from Sounds and Melody Maker and the Enemy out to Europe to do something with them, knowing full well that they were going to annihilate them, make total fun of them, and 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 they were going to pay their airfares, pay their hotel pay everything, yeah. they're going to write these stinky stories and, and everyone's happy that this is just how the world works. Right. Well, that world doesn't exist anymore, no. obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, in the modern world, I, I definitely feel, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a trickier thing. You know, I, 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 I sometimes write about celebrities and it's a trickier thing because I'm not, you know, I'm not prepared to do some sort of dishonest song and dance in order to write about celebrities. Sure. You know, but, you know, I write about... I'm, if I'm writing about someone, I'm interested in them and I will write about... And I will show that interest and also, I think, always make them interesting. That's what I'm going to give them. But if, if they're going to get frustrated that there's not that sort of extra yeah. fake compliment when it's not the one that I want to make, then, then I'm not, you know, then... Well, they're not, they're not going to get that from me, and um, but I hope what else they get compensates for that. But it may not always. Yeah, I do want to raise what I think was your most. Uh, oh God, you wrote a bunch of uh, wonderful things for us, Chris, and the, there's there's a point I want to make about the, the two of you attached to that in a moment. But the the piece that I there were three pieces of yours we've reproduced in full in the book. One is Bronsky B. Lloyd Cole, which yeah. later the cover that you did, uh, Russell, which I think really began to even more than the Morrissey one, just showed where you were headed. But the Frankie one, that Frankie one is uh, is a fascinating piece, not least because of what happened you know, in the middle of it. Can you just talk us through that moment? Because I also think what you wrote on reflection now, all these years later, accompanying it in the book is very interesting it's an insight into how you work yeah and i you know and i think of that piece, I, you know over the years some of those like i hadn't really thought about the bronsky beat piece until rereading it and I, you know i told you how i felt about it um but the frankie piece i've thought about often and i think i often think of that as the first piece where i discovered or was able to do the thing 
that I do. And I think it's the first sort of proper bit of writing that I did. And, you know, I went down, um, they were rehearsing their first tour down in the Brixton Academy. And basically, I just went down, watched them rehearse, spoke to Holly in the dressing room for a while, then joined all the rest of them in the pub. And in the pub, then everything kicked off. And, and it kicked off in two ways. First, I was there with the, with the lads, as they were called, uh, the, the other three members. And, and, Scallywags. Uh, and, yeah, <laughs> and, and Paul was there too. And they sort of tortured me in a way that was, you know, they kept grabbing my notebook and saying rude. And the, the phrase I always remember is being asked, do you tongue your own hoof? Not, not a phrase I was aware of, but I could work out <laughs> what I was being asked. But it was, it, it was funny because it was, yeah, I felt like I was, you know, they were, they were the biggest group in Britain at the time. In the world. And, this, and I knew that something very yeah. weirdly real was happening around me. So this carried on like this. Um, in the end, so, finally, so the, after a while, they just kept insulting me. So I was just writing and writing and stopped saying things. And then one of them, maybe Nash, says, he's that arty. He doesn't ask any questions. He's a real Morley or, or something like that. And, and anyway, anyway, so I, and I, you know, meanwhile, I had a really good interview with Holly. I, I thought, and it, it, seeing them rehearse was a, you know, it was a, it's one of those things you sort of both took for granted and knew was an amazing privilege because you were seeing, as I said, the biggest band in Britain. No one had ever yeah. seen them perform and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, do a proper show and I'm just watching them rehearse it and it, it was fascinating. And then, uh, and then I, I don't know if we were getting ready to leave or we left, but anyway, the, you know, we are in a rough Brixton pub and the world was, you know, it wasn't like now where celebrity trumps everything. To yeah. be Frankie Goes to Hollywood, you, you may have, you know, had three number one singles, but, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of, you're an out, you're outsider in mainland Britain. And a load of people in a pub in Brixton are looking at you like, what are you doing here? And then it really kicked off. Yeah. And, and, and I don't know who said what to whom, but we ran outside. And the last thing I saw on one of the, was one of the security guys getting, it's the only time I've ever seen anyone hit someone over the head with a chair for right. real um it was it was it was fascinating but i and i remember thinking you know the truth is i wasn't the least bit scared i probably should have been i was just thinking this is interesting this is interesting <laughs> you know i got you know just like this you can write things That's like true. this happen you can write it and it's like going to be you know i felt like i was like you know i felt like i was in you know it's the thing that happens just a few times where you feel like you're in one of the main places where things are happening in what you're interested in yeah. right at that moment. And all you have to do, I mean, it's not all you, on one level, all you have to do is listen, write it down. Now, how you listen and how you write it down, there's a big, there can be a huge yeah. gap between. But basically, it's like that's, you know, that's the amazing opportunity you get if you can be in those situations. And... Yeah, it's it, it made for some harrowing reading because you talk about the miner actually got like pulled out, you know, with blood pouring down the back of his head. An ambulance was going. You got back to the venue, an ambulance was called. He was See, I've forgotten all of that because I yeah yeah, yeah and and I, I I think we always read it and and sort of thought well, the lads as they were called the three heterosexuals in in um, Frankie who seemed very intent on sort of making up for the other two and somehow overcompensating had in many ways got what they were probably asking for yeah. and I 
you know, I've been in the wrong pub at the top of my road. So I know that if you are the biggest pop stars in Britain and you're from Liverpool and you've got the accent, so everybody knows you're from Liverpool, and you're in a pub in South London giving it lots of large, there is every chance, and you, you've come into a, a, a tough pub, there's every chance that somebody's going to say, this is, you know, this is our opportunity to teach them a lesson because that stuff does go on. It, it you know, it, still, it, still it does, really, really think. does go on. And what was fascinating is, you know, the band was actually then split between, you know, one of them saying, well, this is why we need more minders. And the rest of the guy, right. if we didn't have minders, that wouldn't have happened. Like, okay, like yeah, whole, yeah. It, it was a whole entourage be... thing that caused this. It was, it was a fascinating insight into, uh, into a pretty rare but moment. chaos reigned around them. I knew Paul before Frankie he worked for my when I designed clothes, he worked for my friend down in Kensington Market. And then I got to know Holly and I remember them playing me relax on the early demo stage. And like, what's your band called? And they went, Frankie goes to Hollywood. And I went, you get nowhere with a name like that. That's terrible. You know, and so they would ask That's me. That's why you're a photographer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not a journalist. But they would ask me over the years to go photograph them. They'd much prefer me for sounds or any magazine. So I, I followed them around Europe and the chaos every, everywhere we, I went with them. It was absolutely always chaotic yeah you know it was a favor of it was a really really fascinating piece and i remember when it came in i think it was probably john saying to me oh we got something really unusual here because <laughs> um, you know you kind of captured that when that celebrity you know in nature uh, but but they're working class lads and when it sort of bumps into the old-fashioned working class values of what what are you doing in my pub you know which is really what I, like I, you know some of that must have boiled boiled down to but i appreciate that that you know and you just just you just put it into words again, this idea of, of being in the right place and just writing it down. Did you make notes? Did you, was the notebook a common thing for you? Because yeah. I. Yeah, and I always was good at that, and, and to this day I'm. Do you use a tech recorder? Nowadays I'd be more likely to use a recorder too, but no, back then I would have felt like you would have got sort of stomped on if you'd got a recorder out in. I don't, maybe, was, maybe I had to record out when I was. Um, interviewing them but just in the sort of general stuff like when we went back to the the venue I'm sure I was just writing it all down constantly but I always you know that's always been my way is to very very openly take notes because my, my theory is always that people people get used to you very very quickly if you're very open about taking notes like they get used to a camera yeah, yeah. you know but if you try and hide a camera and sneak it then then they, they're going to be really right. really uptight about it but if, if, if you're there and, you know, I, I don't like that. I like the idea. Of, I love getting on with people. And if you become friends with people, that's terrific. But I always think you should be very clear about why you're there, yeah. sort of visually very clear. And I think it's just healthier all round. So, yeah, I was always, um, always very keen on taking notes. You know, I think about that and I think about some other things that happened early on. You don't appreciate how lucky you are. I mean, on one hand, you're putting yourself there, and that's how the luck happens. But, you know, because around the same time, I did my first Smash Hits cover, and it was with Wham. And I was on tour with them, and George Michael to put, his, put, to put his back out. Um, Do you mind having a Smash Hits story about Wham <laughs> in your podcast? And uh, so, so I travelled back with him to London, and I just thought this was totally normal. So, and we stopped off at his parents' house for tea. And so we have tea with... And so I found out Smash It's and I said, I'm really sorry, I didn't see the second gig. And they're like, what did you do? And I said, oh, we went back and we went to his parents' house for tea. And, uh, and you can see that. <laughs> and Mark Ellen was going, oh, it's probably going to be OK. <laughs> I just thought things like that happened. happened. And, and in a way, they do. But 
Yeah, and once you're on the inside, yeah. and actually maybe if you're not starstruck about them, you know, that, that's what provides you the access. Yeah, you know, um, I think there's something to that. Yeah, there, there is. If you're a comfort, I mean, I think that the, the musicians want you to be com comfortable in their world. If you're a little too starstruck, they'll they'll probably keep you a little at arms, yeah. you know, at arms length. Or if they feel they can't, they can't trust you. Um, the um, those those two covers in succession, they 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 they're great. I particularly love the Cocteau Twins one, which is right yeah, here. That's great. Um, I really do. And of the various covers, there's. Um, yeah, you've yeah you've got you've got both of these. So here is what I learned was, I got so many magazine covers over, the um, course of the next ten years or so, because I would leave space for type, and I realized I talked to Lawrence about this one and this one, and we talked about where the logo would go, how I would frame the band, and so I would leave always space above, and you know like the lemon drops I think made the cover of sounds should never have. But be, just because there was space, they they got to, you know, the designers, you know, love yeah, my work. And, and, you know, even when I would, you know, shoot record sleeves, I would leave space and I would always try to introduce two or three good designers to the record company that I knew would, you know, not over graphic design things, let, let, the, let the beauty of a photograph, let the beauty of the person, you know. And this colour shot of Liz Fraser is one of my favourites because I just think I love the way she's not quite looking at you. Yeah. Uh, which is, uh, I always think, is quite crucial, you know, to not always look at the camera. Yeah. And uh, they're both gorgeous. And, you know, I don't need to dwell on the end of jamming, um, but I would like to, you know, talk about where we went because for you, it, it's funny, I would have, you know, if you'd asked me previously uh, at some point, you know, how long between Cocteau Twins and, and George Michael's Faith, <coughs> I might have presumed that you had to, it was a journey, but actually it was the following year. It was very, yeah, it, very it was, yeah. So I had these in my portfolio and I went to Sounds and Blitz and I took one live thing. My first thing for Sounds was live and I went back to Tony, oh my God, I forget his name. Tony's not Stuart, no. Whoever the editor was, and I said, I'm never going to do live again. Just give me some covers and studio and feature stuff. And he did. He gave me a cover the next week of um, some, I can't remember who the hell it was now, but some, some incredible band. And I'm like, great, that worked. And then I did a few covers for Blitz, one of which was Rupert Everett. And his publicist was Connie Filippello, <clears throat> who came in. And I had this Polograph, instant Polar Polaroid thing. And... I shot the cover within five minutes of him being in front of the cover, you know, in front of my camera. We put it on the light box. I said, this is the cover. Look, we can put the type there, do that. The designer was there and she went, what? And two weeks later, she called my portfolio in for George, George Michael. So. And it would have had these in there as well, no doubt. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Can no, see no, I would have these, yeah, yeah. Stylistically, you can <clears throat> see where that cover comes yeah, from. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. You went off to, you know, other music press for a while. I went off to other music press yeah. for a while. You had the job at... Smash hits. I was there two or three years, and then I, and then then I pretty soon I started working in America, so I was mainly working in Britain in the for the face. But then in, I, by about nineteen ninety, I was working for or just before I was working for Details magazine, which is oh, yeah. very, which yeah. is very different to yeah. what it became. It was for, in the early nineties. It was an incredibly exciting magazine yeah. to work for. This really struck me. I heard something. Uh, not too long ago, or read something, 
just seemed blindingly obvious, and I hadn't come across it in the, uh, the previous 45, 50 years of, of being involved in some form of work, which was somebody said, if you are, there are, there are three things like an editor is you know, looking for, ideally you, you're, you're all three. If you uh, deliver it on time, if what you deliver is good, and if you're pleasant to work with. Right. And you can actually get away with any two of the three. So if your work is on time and it's good, they will probably deal with you being a little bit of a, maybe, you know, like a, if you've got an ego or something, or, you know, they'll, they'll deal with that because the work is worth it and yeah. it's on time. And if you're pleasant to deal with um, and the work's on time, it doesn't always have to be the best because at least you're reliable. Right. But the, you know, the ideal is to have all three. And it kind of has struck me that uh, jamming where things were pretty haphazard, you know, the two of you fulfilled all three of those pretty much all the time. Like things showed up on time right. and they were good. And you were both always very, very easy to work with. I don't remember arguments, you know, hmm. I don't remember arguments with the no, two of you. Arguments, you know? what, I, what I'm learning from that is we could have got away with being ourselves. We still would have got the work. I know. <laughs> yeah. But then you might have joined the other people who were two out of three that when no, no, it came, I, I, you know, that when push but, came to shove. At least we know the secret to success now. So, no, no, no. so, so had you heard that before? Because I was like, no, no, I haven't. Never. Obvious, really, when you never. think about it. No, from our side, we were never privy to that no, information. No, I, I, I was dreading you were going to say, and, and it comes in at the right length. And I was thinking, oh, oh no, no. But I think that might have No, see, I only heard this about a year ago. Is what I'm saying. It clicked with me. Like that's a that's a perfect formula for. Of course it is. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, It really, it really, really makes sense. But it also, it also made me think. You know, well, I don't remember having runners and other people. They might, and there was never much money there at all. And you know, it wasn't like you were like, well, I'm giving you really good. I'm doing most of the work here. You know, can you give me a bit more? There was never any of that. It was still playing football together, and you yeah. just made up for it by getting six pieces instead of you know the one that other people would get. So I mean, it was the only money coming in at one point for me. The only money. Yeah, is it? Yeah, but, but I remember, you know, I'd moved to London and I'd got it worked out. I needed to earn thirty pounds a week. I was, right. I was squatting, wow. and you know, so yeah. you know, in, in in real terms, you know, obviously it wasn't a lot of money. But if you, if you were trying to get thirty pounds a week, then you know, I was laughing when this started. This started happening. Yeah, he I paid mean, you more than a pound a week, did he? No. I think we were paying like thirty pounds a thousand words. So you I mean at first you'd have been That's how you wrote thirty pounds a month from us. <laughs> but nonetheless, you know, you know. Anyway, it, you know, it. Um, I think we tried to, you know, we 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 tried to do the right thing by paying people, even though actually there really wasn't the money to do it. Right. Um, but that's, you know, that's all all what that is. I mean, your your sort of, you know, thirty five years to sum up in, you know, two minutes is going to be really hard. But you ended up doing a couple of books and. Carrying on as a writer, do you want to just bring us up to up to speed in your own um, words? Yeah, I've, I've sort of had a few different careers, but they're all they're all writing. Um, you know, in in America, I've mainly worked doing nonfiction in magazines, um, some some pop culture and celebrity things, but an awful lot not. And then, in, but in Britain, I've, people in Britain know my books much better, and because I've done. Um, numbers of books on both the Pet Shop Boys and Robbie Williams that have done well and of course they're not that especially Robbie's not very well known over here so that so it's almost like I'm two different people in that way and then I've there's various other things I've done quietly and um 
and I'm working on another book that's coming out soon that's completely different from anything. Music? Not not, not oh, even close. Right, right, no. Right. No. So um so you know, but writing and you know, very happy writing. What's your main gig these days? Um, magazine wise, I'm writing for the Atlantic and Fantasy Fair and GQ. And then Russell the same like sum it all up in two minutes flat, <laughs> you know? I mean, I had 15 years in the music business and it afforded me just an amazing life, just incredible stories and incredible friends from that. And, you know, I mean, I got to travel the world and experience everything, everything. I mean, absolutely everything. I mean, I became friends with people like, you know, George Michael in the end of the day. And, you know, I mean, it's just like the, you know, the, I mean, he's a, he's a clever man. He was amazing, you know, and... You know, those sort of people, like Morrissey and, and George, are, they're special people. They're really special people. And so it was nice to be around them. And George opened so many doors for me. He opened um, the music directing um, career. The second music video I directed, we co-directed. So that opened the doors. After 15 years of starting with you, I sort of fell out of love with the music industry. I didn't like the music. I didn't like the... You know, I directed a hundred music videos in the end of the day and I didn't like the music coming to me. I didn't like the artists coming to me. So I decided to go back to what the three, four year old kid used to do, which was draw and paint. And I've had a 20 year career as an artist, which has beyond, beyond anything I could even imagine. You know, it's phenomenal. But here's a final question. Why did we all, end, why did the three of us end up in America? Why did we end up living here? It rained every day of June 91. In England. And I'm like, this is the summer? This is whatever? No, I always wanted to live in California. I always saw this as the new Rome in, you know, when I, in the 80s when we were doing all this. I, I always aspired to everything American and surfing and the great lifestyle. And, you know, it, it was, I came because there'd be different faces to photograph, you know. Um, the same faces were coming to the camera time and time again, you know, so... Right. So you had that vision from a young age, like, I can see where I'm going to be. And it's yeah, gonna be California. yeah, absolutely. How are you, Chris? Um, it's a, you know, it's a mixture of personal and professional. You know, personally for love, but professionally, it, I feel awkward saying the truth, which is that because I love, I, I love the British kind of writing culture that I grew up in, but the kind of, but magazine writing particularly is taken so much more seriously here, and so you're able to do it in so much more of a serious way, and to do it as a serious kind of adult life, and that doesn't mean the end result is sort of boring or po-faced or something. I'd be incredibly upset if that was what I'd been doing. But it, it's just simply, it's not, you know, there's, it sometimes feels in Britain like it's, you know, a hobby that you need to grow out of. Wow, yeah. No, absolutely. And there's some fantastic writers in yeah. Britain, so I'm not, yeah. you know, but it's, it's, and it's really hard to, to make, it, make, it, make a living doing it in Britain. And, and here... They had a great life doing it and had a, been able to have amazing experiences and had the resources to you know travel all around the world and and do incredible things and write about and have the time to write about the things I want to write about so that's that's really been the professional reason huh. Tony there was a bank holiday that I was at Notting Hill Carnival it might have been after the uh, jamming fold it might have been 86 it was probably Notting Hill Carnival bank holiday Monday 86 where it rained all day long 
and I was just, I don't think I can take any more of this. Yeah, right. And, uh, and in the summertime. And similarly, I have to also say, I, I, we, we can circle all the way back to UB40, and maybe this is where we should, should end it. They had a single called If It Happens Again, which was actually written about the, the idea of if Thatcher gets elected the third time. Right. It's like, if it happens again, I won't say I'm sorry, I'll pack my bags and go. Right. And I took that very seriously. And I was like, you know what? I don't need to stay in a country that, you know, like, like I'm fed up with being the minority right now. I know I'll be the minority in the States. Everybody was like, but Thatcher, you're going from Thatcher to Reagan. I'm like, yeah, but New York City just doesn't feel that way. No. It just feels more alive. And I never regretted that part of it. And funny, funny enough, I, I also thought I would end up in the countryside somewhere and skip the suburbs, and, and I did. And right. That, that made sense. But it's funny, it was the UB40 song, and I was never even that big a fan of them, and it yeah. stuck with me. But you, you always had Ipswich. Yes. We, we, we always had Ipswich. It's where we fell in love, wasn't it? Even though I don't uh, remember going to Ipswich. We will, we will always have Ipswich. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Good to see you. Thank you to Chris and Russell again for the conversation, and thank you to Russell for hosting us in New York City that evening. Chris honed in on something that I think is at the essence of our work as journalists and photographers, and is also at the essence of a good podcast, which is to be interested in our subjects. I believe the three of us were genuinely interested in the journeys we've all taken, both from our beginnings to where we've ended up, the time we spent at jamming, and I believe that came across in the conversation you just heard. So as mentioned up front, the book is now out. It's called The Best of Jamming, Selections and Stories from the Fanzine that grew up 1977 to 86. It's out worldwide at this point. And if you didn't gather already from everything that you've heard or haven't seen it yet, it's a compendium of some of the best and most varied articles from all across the decade-long run of jamming. It includes pieces on politics, sports stars like George Best, uh, as you will have heard, all manner of different musics. It's got contributions from people like Chris and Russell, lots of other people who were part of the magazine's journey. Billy Bragg wrote the foreword, and I wrote something to accompany every issue, so it's also a history of jamming. And it feels like, and was designed to be like, one of those Christmas bumper annual editions of something like Beano or Shoot that as kids we would sometimes get, would certainly hope to get in our holiday stockings. So yeah, I'm giving you gift ideas. As also mentioned up front, we have some events coming up, some in-person events at which I'll be appearing with some excellent, really well-informed hosts. We'll have some movies at some, some DJs at others. Those are all going to be listed in the show notes, which you can see on your phone uh, or your computer. And uh, otherwise, just follow the web links that you're hearing in the credits and the social media that you can find in the show notes. And you'll get all the information there. All of these events are, of course, COVID-permitting. I'm going to let my great friend Jenny DeHart give you those credits. She was one of the guests on episode one from Classroom to Clubs. Yes, what a long journey we've taken. How great it is to still be friends with people all these years down the line. Take care. See you at the next episode. Cheers. Bye. This episode of the Jamming Fanzine podcast was produced by Tony Fletcher. Greg Morton provided editing assistance and designed the logo. The Jamming Fanzine podcast theme was written, recorded and produced by Noel Fletcher. The book, The Best of Jamming, Selections and Stories from the Fanzine that Grew Up, 1977-86, to 86, is published by Omnibus Press. For more information, please visit TonyFletcher.net or OmnibusPress.com. 
Check the show notes for more details. And if you like what you hear, please hit subscribe, leave a review, a rating or share. We'll be back on the podcast stands in two weeks, bringing back that new optimism of the 80s, hopefully.